Now, I came into my house last week and every light outside, inside was turned off, nothing on. And I had to struggle to find the key to fit in the lock, no moonlight. I went into the house, but I could walk into that house without hitting a single object because I knew where everything was. Listen, when you walk in the light, your pattern when you are in dark times, deep, desperate times, will be to continue to pray. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're working on a study in the book of Jonah, and having looked at the stubbornness of Jonah, today we look at his penitent prayer. It is often in the discipline of God that, like Jonah, we are drawn back to him. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins by looking at another miracle involving the obedience of a fish. On one occasion, if you remember, the leaders are questioning Christ's submission to Rome and the payment of taxes. And, and in God's providence, God has some guy lose his coin and it falls a stater over his boat and down into the sea. And he says, fish, go get that stater. The fish ghost gets that stater and he says, Peter, I want you to go cast your line into the water. The first fish you pull up, it's going to have a stater in it and you can pay your tax in mine. Our God is a great God. He appoints this fish. Fish, come here. I got a prophet you need to pick up. And the fish immediately responds because our God is sovereign over his entire creation. Now, with that said, I don't want to give all of our attention to what happened on the outside in the ocean as much as I want you to see this morning what God did on the inside in Jonah's heart. And again, when you put these verses together, you see a picture between God's sovereignty and whether it's fish responsibility or human responsibility, God is over it all. The Lord commanded the fish, we're going to see, dropping down to chapter 2 and verse 10, he commanded the fish to vomit him up on dry land. And so he appoints the fish, he commands the fish to swallow Jonah, and then he commands the fish to spit up Jonah. This is a God who is sovereign, who is at work. And when you think about what God does in the world today, you don't want to miss the human responsibility, the part that you and I are called to play. Think about the Great Commission. We can rag on Jonah for his unwillingness to go and preach to the Ninevites when God has commanded us to take the gospel to make disciples. I've told you that verse was abused about 70 years ago by a Christian campus organization, and they made it to redo discipleship. And so now we have all these Christians in America. I just lead my little Bible study, and I'm doing discipleship. That's not what the verse says. It has nothing to do with the verse. Make disciples as you go. Make converts. That's what God's called us to we wonder why America is in such deep, desperate shape today. It's because we've put our light under the basket. We've stopped being salt. We've stopped sharing Jesus Christ as a way of life. That's human responsibility. Will in the divine sovereignty of God, will the Great Commission get fulfilled? Absolutely. 
Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. God is going to do it. It will be completed ultimately during the tribulation period. 144,000 Jewish converts, two men, probably Moses and Elijah on the Temple Mount, an angel of God, and every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to have converts in it. It will be completed. The question is, what part will you have? What part will I have? So sandwiched between Jonah 1.17, the Lord appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, and 2.10, where he commands the fish to spit up Jonah, is a picture of human responsibility as seen in prayer. So with that said, let's look at the prayer. If you're using your note-taking outline, we want to begin this morning with the setting, with the setting of Jonah's prayer. Again in verse 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. Then, then when? (laughs) After Jonah had been swallowed, I mean, what else are you going to do if you're in the belly of a great fish but pray? God knew he needed to create a situation to break Jonah down, to make Jonah depend on the plan that he had for his life. And sometimes God will put us in desperate situations where the only way we can look is up. He doesn't always have to do that. He certainly doesn't always want to do that. Paul writes to the church at Rome that the blessings of God can lead us to repentance. But sometimes God has to use desperate situations to bring about repentance. And so he hits bottom, so to speak. C.S. Lewis wrote a classic little book called The Problem of Pain. I took a course on college on the works of C.S. Lewis. And I think it was probably my favorite book out of all the books I read by Lewis. And he just reminds the reader that it is tests and difficulties and heartaches and human experience that God uses sometimes to get our attention. The classic line in the book is this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, if I were to tell you that for the next 365 days, you will not have a single problem in your life, how much would you depend on the Lord? See, God uses difficulties to grow us into Christ. It's part of being a human, and it is certainly part of being a Christian. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1 and verse 29? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Oh, the prosperity theologians, they missed that verse. Of course they did appointed for us to suffer. Why? Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. God grants to those people who believe to suffer. When was the last time you thanked God for suffering? Jesus promised in the world you will have philipsis. It's speaking about persecution, not just heartache, not just trials. All tribulations are trials, not all trials are tribulations. In the world, you will have philipses, tribulations. It speaks of the hostility of a godless world against the people of God. But be of great courage, I have overcome the world. We studied in the book of James, consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, or you could render it steadfastness, or you could render it patience. You see, we all want the product but we don't always want the process. 
but the process is what God uses to conform us to his son. We noted last time that suffering comes in at least three different ways is unfolded for us in scripture. There is common suffering. That's the kind of suffering that comes because we live in a fallen world. And so Christians and non-Christians alike suffer heart attacks, tsunamis, hurricanes, and the like. And so we live in a fallen world. But beyond common suffering, we also saw that there is Christian suffering. Peter speaks of those who will suffer as a Christian. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. This is suffering that comes because you are living a godly life. And you reflect to that unbeliever what they should be. They are convicted and sometimes they will kick back against you because of it. But don't despair. Many of those people who will kick back against you will ultimately be converted. But then beyond Christian suffering and common suffering, there's carnal suffering. Carnal suffering is the suffering that we experience because of someone else's sin. Husband beats up his wife. A drunk driver crosses over the lane and kills an innocent person. More often, carnal suffering because, happens because of our own sin. And when it happens because of our sin and we're a believer, the promise that we studied last time from Proverbs quoted in the book of Hebrews, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Here's Jonah, he's living in sin. So he has to spend three days and three nights on a foam blubber mattress because of his disobedience. And so whatever it takes, For God to get our attention, he will use it. God periodically puts us in a different kind of situation of trouble so that we'll call out to him and pray. But that should not be the pattern as to when we pray. We, We need to live in a spirit of prayer. Unfortunately for many of us, prayer is like a parachute. It's good to have in case of emergency. If an emergency happens, pull the ripcord of prayer and hopefully everything will be fine. But God wants us to pray as a way of life. He wants us to pray when everything is good, when we're in the brightness of God's blessing, walking in the light so that when we're in the dark, we continue to fellowship with the Lord. Now, I came into my house last week and every light outside, inside was turned off, nothing on. And I had to struggle to find the key to fit in the lock, no moonlight. I went into the house, but I could walk into that house without hitting a single object because I knew where everything was. Listen, when you walk in the light, your pattern when you are in dark times, deep, desperate times, will be to continue to pray. Now that's the setting of Jonah's prayer. Beyond the setting of Jonah's prayer, I want you to think with me the substance of Jonah's prayer. The substance of Jonah's prayer. If you will study this prayer carefully, you will discover that he recounts what happened to him from the moment they threw him overboard. Look at verse two. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I called for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. The depth of Sheol, literally the belly of Sheol is not a reference to the fish's stomach. There's a different word for that found in Jonah 1.17. As we're gonna see in a moment, It first recounts his experience when he was initially thrown overboard. And he describes it like Sheol. Now, Sheol is an important theological word that you need to know. Sheol is the Hebrew word that's used to describe the place of the grave. 
If you were reading the Greek translation of the whole Old Testament, they would use the word Hades. Now, we use the word Hades, and this will play on your mind a little bit, and we usually think of it negatively. But actually, Hades and Sheol had two dimensions to it. There was a positive dimension to Hades or Sheol, and there was a negative dimension to Hades or Sheol. The positive dimension, it's called righteous Sheol. And so Jesus in Luke 16, he tells a parable. Some say it's not a parable because someone is named in it, Lazarus. Well, if it is a parable, it's the only parable with someone's name in it, but it doesn't change the meaning at all. Though I think it has the characteristics of a parable. Lay that aside. He describes a truth, a man dies who's rich, And he goes to unrighteous Sheol, to a place of suffering, to a place of torment. He goes there not because he's rich. He goes there because he's an unbeliever. The text indicates he's an unbeliever. He said, look, have Lazarus come up from the dead. If he sees someone raised from the dead, my five brothers who haven't repented will repent, indicating he had not repented. That's why he's an unrighteous Sheol, because he's lost. Lazarus. He's in righteous Sheol. He's in a place called Abraham's Buddhism. It's also called paradise. It's a place of blessing. And he's there not because he suffered in this life, and this is like some kind of reverse karma. No, he's there because he was a believer who walked with God, who had his faith in the living God. Now, the Bible teaches that when Jesus ascended into heaven, understand in the Old Testament, heaven's gate in the fullest sense what we call the New Jerusalem, the Father's house, that's not where believers went. They went to Sheol, righteous Sheol. It was not until time and space when Jesus dies on the cross, pays for our sin, proves his ability when he is risen from the dead, when he ascends into heaven, Ephesians 4 teaches that he emptied out righteous Sheol. And so righteous Sheol continues. And it, by the way, it's still called paradise. Paul has a vision in 2 Corinthians 12 of paradisus. It's the same word. The uh, thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradisus. Where did he go? He went to righteous Sheol. But after the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus emptied out righteous Sheol. And they went to a new expression of paradise. To this day, however, unrighteous Sheol continues. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. For the Christian, absent from the body, present in unrighteous Sheol. You can call it now Hades, and today it is only negative, but it's not the final resting place. Just like paradise was ultimately transferred to a new paradise, to the Father's house, to the new Jerusalem. Someday God will take everyone, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. It's called Gehenna. That's the word that we usually render hell in the Bible. This morning, hell is empty. Satan and his fallen angels are not in hell. Now, there's a group of angels we've studied who are in a place called Tartarus. But, you know, people say, well, Satan's in hell and that person just went there and Satan's poking him with a pitchfork. No, that's just fantasy. Satan's not in hell. He won't be cast into hell with all of his fallen angels until the end of time. And so righteous Sheol continues in a place called paradise. So don't get mixed up. When we speak of Sheol, it can speak of a literal place, 
but it can also be used to describe metaphorically death, a place of extreme danger. King David uses it that way. Listen to these words from Psalm 30 in verse 3. Oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. What is David saying? Did David die and God brought him up from the grave? Not at all. This is a metaphorical use of the term Sheol. He was in a place of extreme danger. He had, in essence, one foot in the grave. But God rescued King David, if you know the psalm. That's what he is describing here. He's going down into this watery grave. And he said in verse 2, I called out of my distress to the Lord. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. The phrase, the depth of Sheol, one translation says the grave. It does not mean that he died, but he was gripped with the reality of death. I cried out for help. He's very much alive. I cried out of my, out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered. I cried out for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard me. He's very much alive when he's praying. But in essence, he has one foot in the grave because he's in extreme danger. Now, occasionally you'll hear someone preach, some good people. I would just differ with them, but we'll cover this more in the next message. You don't want to miss the next message. It's critical to the whole series. It's one of the most important texts that you will be questioned on as a believer. But with that said, there are some people who say, well, Jonah literally died. And to substantiate that and to baptize that position, they quote what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they denied his triple miracle. And they asked for another sign. And he said, an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Then he adds, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so they conclude from the illustration that Jonah must have died, and then on the third day, God raised him. And by the way, we'll look at the chronology of three days, three nights in our next gathering, God willing. But it's not necessary for Jonah to have died to have made a complete picture of what Jesus is saying, any more than it was necessary for Isaac to have died up on top of Mount Moriah. And yet the Bible tells us he's a type, he's an illustration, he's a picture of Christ. He was as good as dead. Abraham was getting ready to plunge the knife into his chest when the angel of the Lord intervened. He was as healthy as a horse. And yet he is a picture of substitution. He is a picture of a father giving his uniquely blessed son and so here's Jonah. He's as good as dead. And so in that sense, he pictures Christ. Look at verse 3 of Jonah 2. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Now, this is a pivotal verse, and it may be very, very helpful to some of us as we think through prayer. You might want to circle in your Bible the second person pronoun you and your. In fact, as we work through the chapter, you should circle it. Some of you are looking at me. Get your pen out. Circle it. You're going to learn. You're going to learn. I promise. Stay with me now. For you cast me into the deep. Your breakers and billows passed over me. And so this will help us to unlock the meaning of the verse in terms of what is unfolding. Now, let me take you back to Jonah 1 and verse 15. The prophet there wrote, but they, so they, meaning the sailors, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. 
But then we read here in verse 2, for you, Yahweh, had cast me into the deep. So who threw Jonah overboard? God and men. You see, when Jonah writes his testimony, he understood that the sailors were simply instruments in the hand of a sovereign God. You see this unfold all the way through Scripture. For instance, in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles, who killed, who crucified the Lord Jesus? Well, Peter stands up shortly after the miracle of Pentecost, and he says, men of Israel, you nailed him, that is Jesus, to a cross. And then as he continues the sermon, he not only includes Jews, but Gentiles. He said in, in Acts 2 and verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And still another passage of Scripture Beyond the people in Jesus' literal day as he walked on the earth, you and I are indicted with the crucifixion of Christ. All of humanity. Isaiah will write, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So please do not get caught up in this anti-Semitic recycled controversy that the Jews committed deicide, that they murdered the Lord Jesus. And that's what some of the reformers concluded, and they spoke some wicked things about the people of Israel. So on the one hand, the Jews crucified him. On the other hand, the Gentiles crucified him. On the other hand, you and I crucified him, but beyond that, even God crucified him. Isaiah will say he was smitten of God and afflicted. He will write, the Lord was pleased to crush him. So who killed Jesus? God and man. And God used human agents to accomplish his work. So don't think that God is limited, that he needs to come down here with a physical paddle and take you to the woodshed to exercise his discipline. God has many creative ways in which to get our attention. Maybe you've learned this already in your Christian experience. I've seen pagan employers rebuke Christian employees because of either A, dishonesty, or more often than not, laziness, or less than excellence in the work that they are doing. And one of the major principles that is found in this book that I want us to be sensitive to is the, the, the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's read further into verse three. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, all your breakers and billows passed over me. The waves are all over Jonah and the current is moving him and God's breakers and billows, they're swallowing him up, verse four. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, why did he look again toward the holy temple? Because it was in the tabernacle, later the temple of God, where the Shekinah glory of God would come. And three times a day, you saw Daniel turning towards the temple. If you're in uh, some airport, or maybe even at an, in an aircraft 30,000 feet above the earth, you will see Orthodox Jews, if it's part of that flight, and it always is if you go from here to Israel, and they will turn to the temple, and they will pray in that direction. That's what Jonah's doing. 
Now, was he literally, did he orient himself? I'm not so sure, but metaphorically, at least in his heart, he is doing what every righteous Jew would do. They would turn towards the temple of God and pray. Now, remember, there was a time earlier when he had a way out. In Jonah 1 and verse 11, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? God was giving him a way out. He could have said, turn the ship around. Take me back to Joppa. Take me back there. I'm going to go to Nineveh, and the sea would have instantly have become calm. But that's not, of course, what he does. And so God says, you want to play hardball? Okay. Throw him overboard. That's what God does. He is exercising divine discipline on his prophet. And sometimes God does that to his people today. We looked at it last time. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 11? For this reason, for what reason? Because some of the born-again Corinthian believers were living in sin. Open rebellion. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Hey, look, a whole lot of sickness comes just because we live in a fallen world. But some sickness, some weakness, some sleep, that is early death, comes from the disciplinary hand of God. And so he goes on to say, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Some people, I, I think, you know, I meet with them, I counsel them, I think, well, man, what's it going to take? You know, I, I plead with you to get right. It's, it's not rocket science. The problem that's in your home today is just very simple. It's sin. The heart of the problem is always a problem of the heart, preachers will say. You just need to get right. What's it going to take? Does God have to drop your finances out? Is he going to let your children rebel because you're so far away from God and you're not bringing them up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord? Are you going to lose your job? Are you going to lose your house? I had to call a Marine. Just recently, I mean, he was here for a short time, was privileged to lead he and his wife to the Lord, baptize him here for one month. They go off to Virginia. She calls me heartbroken, another woman. I said, man, what's it going to take? You want to lose your wife? Who's willing to forgive you? You want to lose your kids? What's it going to take? Verse 4, so I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. So Jonah is admitting his sin. He's turning back to the temple of God. That's a statement of recommitment that's found in the Old Testament. He is literally clinging to a promise that God had made earlier through a man by the name of King Solomon. Let me read it to you. It was on the day that Solomon dedicated the temple, 1 Kings 8. Solomon says, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction or the sin of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God is the God of second chances. There is no mistake, no act of disobedience too big for God to forgive. 
Like Jonah, we need to humble ourselves in repentance and turn back to the Lord. If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH4. And of course, always use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. Tomorrow, we'll finish our fourth message in our study of the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music>